1: Welcome to Investment Ideas. I'm your host, Ed Harrison, and I'm talking to Gary Schilling, who is the founder and president, I believe it is, of the economic consultancy and information, the investment advisors of the same name. I, I really screwed that up, Gary. Maybe you can tell us uh, what, the, what the answer is. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in registered investment advisors and economic consultants. We also publish a newsletter, so we we're, we're pretty much cover the waterfront from the top down on the economy, starting with the economy and
1: getting down to the uh, investment strategy. Well, you know, we've spoken before, uh, but I think this is a good time to mention the fact that, uh, you know, you have a uh, the monthly newsletter, the Insight newsletter, which you've been doing for quite a long time. Uh, l- let me just give you a little bit of a plug, because people can get to it at agaryshilling.com. They can also find it at uh, 888-346-7444. So that's a bit old school in terms of the telephone number. The reason I mentioned that, Gary, is, again, you've been doing this independent research, uh, one of the best out there for a long time. How long have you been in the business?
2: Yeah, we, well, we shut up the firm in 1978. And uh, we've been publishing the newsletter pretty much the whole time. And if people are interested, we'd be happy to send them a complimentary copy if they just uh, give us a call or an email, uh, okay.
1: see for themselves what kind of things we do. Excellent. So yeah, uh, that number again, and then also agaryshilling.com, they can get in touch with you. Now, Gary, I want to talk to you about your investment thesis. This is investment ideas, so that's why uh, we're talking about this. But to get there, you're a an economist by trade. We want to go through the economics first. You know what the the economic situation is and what your projections are going forward, uh, just to give people a sense of where we're going to get to. You're long treasuries, you're short the dollar, short equities. Uh, but we're going to talk about how we get to that position. Okay, fine. So, Gary. Um, the the way that I'm going to frame this is the long, cold, dark winter. That's where we're headed right now. We're actually in the middle of this. I mean, when we're taping this, literally the last two days of COVID-19 deaths were the highest sense ever in the United States. Uh, and that would suggest that indeed uh, uh, bad things are happening as we speak. And that pretends potentially very bad things Uh, for this entire winter. Is it a stretch for me to put it that way? Or are you seeing, I mean, are you seeing things differently than I am?
2: Well, I think it's gonna be long and dark. We'll see whether it's cold. (laughs) I mean, uh, We have had uh, warmer weather in the last few winters, but uh, no, I I think it is gonna take a long time uh, because the the vaccines that are being developed uh, and they are moving ahead rapidly on them, but uh, by the time they get them uh, fully uh, distributed and tested and people trust them. That's very important that people and governments trust them. Uh, I think we're probably going to be pretty much a year from now before that whole thing is, is, is working. So uh, long, cold, dark winter, but maybe you throw in spring and summer as well, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Uh, so w- w- what does that mean? That's the question in terms of what that means For the economy and also in terms of tidiness over. First, I want to talk about what it means for the economy because I'll give you an example. Uh, Two days ago, I I went to get my pick up my bike because it was at the bike shop being fixed, and I also wanted to get a space heater because we're having problems with our heating system here in the house. You know, in the basement where where I'm trapped for the I've been trapped for the last nine months, and there was no one there. Gary, we, we saw restaurants. We saw, um, you know, we went to the Macy's. I went to the Target, uh, to a whole mall. That, uh, I saw the movie theaters. No one was there. Is, is that how it's going to be for, until this vaccine? I think it is. I mean, yeah,
2: you know, the, the reality is that it's the physical proximity that spreads the virus. And, and we've had this repeated attempt by governments and by business interests to reopen business, reopen the economy, uh, but every time they do, you get a, a new wave of infections. In the U.S., even worse in Europe, and then they gotta close things back down again. And it's obviously a very frustrating situation for politicians and businesses and so on. But that's that's reality. That this virus just doesn't go away on its uh, on its own. So uh, I think we are going to see repeated um, closings. And, you know, now they keep arguing about, you know, schools in various areas, New York, et cetera, whether they're going to have open or not. Um, I was just talking to some people, actually, at uh, University of the South Suwannee, Tennessee, and whether they're going to have classes uh, face-to-face. I talked to another guy at Stanford, uh, where I got a PhD years ago, and they're they're deciding whether they're going to have physical presence. So you know, a lot of the aspects of the, of the economy are really closed down. And it's not only disruptive, but it's very disconcerting. Nobody knows what to expect.
1: Yeah, let's put some numbers to that. Because today, we came out with the uh, unemployment report, uh, the jobs report, and it was a pretty big miss on the, the headline number. Uh, nonfarm payrolls were Uh, 245,000 added, and unemployment rate went down to 6.7 instead of 6.8 percent. But the expectation was for 469,000 jobs, and we also uh, had 638,000 jobs that were added to the economy in the uh, you know in the month prior in October. And really, we still have 9.8 million jobs to make up that we've lost since February. Still. Almost 10 million jobs short. So 245 thousand jobs isn't a lot in that context. What does that mean uh, for in in terms of just numerically in terms of the growth expectations you have? uh, Can you put uh, some uh, some meat on the bones in terms of what your expectations are for the employment market as well?
2: Well, first of all, the unemployment rate. The only reason it can go down is because people drop out of the labor force; they're not counted. So it's it's irrelevant, but the, you did have very weak payroll employments. And what was what was interesting when you tear apart the numbers is the jobs that are being created are pretty much the stay-at-home economy, you know, warehousing, uh, deliveries. It's the Amazon effect, if you will. And then you look at the, those are the winners. The losers are, are retail trade, the bricks and mortar uh, kind of establishments and so on. Uh, and and so you have this you have this tremendous differentiation. Uh, of, of people are buying uh, furniture, they're buying more uh, electronic gadgets for a home. It's a lot of the the fangs have benefited from this. But then you look at the at the rest of the economy, and it's really in pretty pretty sad shape. And those employment numbers gave you a very clear indication of that. That was November. There's no reason to think it's going to get any better in coming months. It probably may be worse. Um, I had a I had a reporter call me this morning and ask, uh, could we see a negative number for December in terms of payrolls? And I said, no, certainly possible. If you look at the trend where it's been declining, uh, the rate of increase has been declining for four months. You very well could go negative in December.
1: Yeah, and you know, actually, I saw that Justin Wolfers he was mentioning this. Uh, he said that the household survey suggests that employment actually declined by uh, 74K last month. If you look at the household survey uh, versus what the establishment survey said, maybe it's because they didn't get to all the establishments.
2: Yeah, well, you know, those are two different surveys. And the establishment survey, of course, is actually polling establishments. How many people are on your payroll? Uh, That's pretty straightforward. The household survey is really an answer to questions that are, are posed to households and they're saying, you know, are, are you at work? OK, fine, then you're employed. Are you actively looking for work? Well, if you're actively looking for work, then you're unemployed. But then there are a lot of subsidiary questions. So would, would you like to have more hours if you're working part time? Uh, and that's called, that's called uh, uh, part time work for economic reasons. There's all kinds of dicing and, and slicing there. Uh, but, but the point is that a lot of people have, have, have simply dropped out of the labor force. They get discouraged. They say, I don't, I don't think there's anything out there. Or they're afraid to leave home. Or they've got kids at home. They can't really go out and look for a job. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons. This, 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 uh, this virus is, is no doubt the most disruptive uh, event in, in the world economy since World War II.
1: Well, you know, two or three questions come up for that. Uh, You know, I wanted to talk about the K-shaped recovery for a second, uh, because you were talking about the uh, Amazon effect versus these retailers, like the places that I went to that were ghost towns. But when you say it's the most disruptive, immediately, I think to myself about the response, because there are a lot of people, especially in the United States, who are bemoaning the policy response. Um, you know, They would say 100 years ago, we didn't have the same sort of policy response that we have today, and, and you know, more people died and so forth. Do you think that policymakers have any choice than the ones that they, they've been taking? Because it seems to me that the United States is actually shutting down less uh, abruptly, and the outcomes are more dire in terms of you know, public health outcomes.
2: Yeah, that's a good point, Ed. If if you look at the difference, the Chinese now, the Chinese, of course, that's a top-down society, and it's very, very different in terms of applying a shutdown. I mean, you know, you either shut down, you're in jail or dead. <laughs> it's very, very simple choices. Um, and and we we Americans are we're a different cut. We're much more independent. Uh, but the point is, when you look at it, the Chinese, just they just closed down that economy, and they got the thing under control. They got tracing. They know who has had contact with anybody, they isolate them, and they were able to handle the problem fairly quickly. South Korea was was the same. Uh, but, but in this country, uh, we just don't have, I don't think there's a public will to really shut down the economy. And the uh, politicians, of course, respond to their to voters, and, and, and so there's great reluctance to really deal with this. But uh, you, you certainly can argue, uh, and, and with the ease of hindsight going back to March, if we had simply shut down the economy, said, "Okay, we're going to just keep her closed for a couple of months. It's going to be it's going to be very, very devastating, but we'll get the whole thing under control." You probably would have been better off, but you know that that that's uh, they're No old history professor, of mine used to say, "There are no ifs in history. You don't know what, what would have happened." But the point is the way we're doing it now, with with uh, opening and shutting, and opening and shutting, and all of this sort of waiting for the uh, vaccines, um, it it just stretches out the whole process.
1: Yeah, it's very destructive. And as a result, I think that, you know, governments it needs to step in or many people think government needs to step in. And that's, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., in the area where I am now, that's where all the talk is. I mean, the biggest talk is about this 908 billion-dollar package, which has been put forward by both Democrats and Republicans in the middle, you know, the moderates like Mitt Romney, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, who are are talking about this. It seems like the Democrats, the, the leaders in both the House and the Senate, have coalesced around this, this uh, package, even though they want more. They said, you know what, this package has the opportunity to get passed. Let's uh, back it. Let's make it happen. What's the possibility that this package gets done? And uh, how much of an impact will it have on the near term from an economic perspective?
2: Uh, the more the virus spreads, the greater the hospitalization rate, obviously, the, the more pressure there is on Congress to do something. And I, I was frankly uh, surprised that they didn't do something at least promise before the election, you know, to to tell people, hey, we're we're concerned, we're we're there to help you, but but they but they didn't. And I think at that point there was some kind of a, a hope that things would fade. But now with the resurgence of the virus, I don't think they have any choice now. You know, will this uh, nine hundred billion and change be the last uh, thing? You know, it depends depends on the economy. But i i think it at best it's a stabilization kind of kind of effort and one of the things that they're trying to do now is to get money out in a lot more uh, effective way what we what we see in retrospect when you go back to march i mean there was near panic and the idea is let's get money out in a hurry uh and and the payroll protection pan and so on and so forth uh, a lot of money went to people who were, uh, businesses that were created just to collect the money, and there was a lot of fraud and, and at their Well, there always is. There's always fraud uh, in in government programs. That that goes with the territory. There's no there's no bottom line. There's no profit potential. So why not? But uh, it was unusually bad, and I think it caused a lot of rethinking. And the whole idea that you know, 52 percent of the people with a $600 uh, additional unemployment insurance on top of state the usual state benefits, 52 percent. Of, of people were making more by staying at home than they were when they were working. Well, obviously that's not a, a terribly good idea, uh, both in terms of encouraging people to work and simply the sense of, of what's fair. So I think now that there, there's probably gonna be a lot more um, thoughtfulness in the way this money is dispensed. And it may be that that the effectiveness of this uh, little less than a trillion dollar program will be greater than uh, more money would have been later, at least in terms of actually doing things for the people who need it and and uh, helping the economy.
1: You know, the, uh, the takeaway for me from what you said is 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 that you, they're basically filling a hole. It's a, it's a make good. It's not stimulus per se. And so that would suggest that more is probably going to be done or needs to be done going forward. The people who come to mind in particular are Janet Yellen and uh, Jay Powell. I wanted to get a sense from you: How much uh, do you think Yellen can and will do? How much can someone like Jay Powell can and will he do? And then, uh, how do how do you look at central banks writ large, given that we have uh, zero rates, potentially negative interest rates uh, in many different places?
2: Well, the Fed has virtually run out of ammunition, and uh, and you remember a couple of months ago they they really changed their policy and they threw in the towel on. On targeting a precise two percent inflation rate, they haven't hit that in five years, and their credibility was very much at very much at risk. So now they basically say, "Well, maybe two percent, but maybe it'll run a higher, higher, maybe lower." You know, it, it's it, it's fading into the sunset. They never can say that was a lousy idea to begin with, and we're just going to abandon it. They've got to, you know, they've got to basically save face on the whole deal. But the Fed is basically impotent at this point. They've done all they can now. Negative rates. You have that in Japan, you have it in some European countries, but it's had the opposite to the intended fact. You would think that if you pay people to take the filthy lucre away, and that's what negative interest rates do, that they would borrow and spend like crazy. I don't know, quite the opposite. People say, hey, wait a minute, my assets are going to be losing money at negative rates, so I've got to save more, spend less in order to prepare for the future. So that, that program hasn't worked, and I think the Fed basically said, Hey, we'll let the Japanese and the Europeans experiment with that. It didn't work, so so they're they're out now. In terms of in terms of uh, the Treasury, um, you know, it, uh, no, no question that Yellen is is very much uh, in favor of further further stimulus. That's her history, but uh, it's it's really up to Congress to uh, enact these programs. And uh, so I, I think it looked more to, to Congress. Uh, Biden obviously is going to be pushing for these things, but. There is this tug of war in Congress, and again, there is a strong feeling, particularly among uh, Republicans, that the money has to be spent a lot more effectively. And you do have this kind of undercurrent, if you will, of when do you take the train wheels off and the economy rides on its own? If you look what happened coming out of the Great Recession, the 07-09 recession, you you had tremendous quantitative easing, uh, then a huge fiscal pile, uh, package, and you know you, that that bear, that really never never got removed. The Fed did start tightening in December of of 2015 a bit, but you know the economy never really was back on its own, and we had the slowest growth of any expansion of the entire post-war period. And then you're back in the soup with the with the virus, and so you know, I think there is there is this kind of feeling. I mean, is this an economy which only exists because of huge government subsidies. And of course, now you've got an excess supply world which keeps inflation low. Uh, Among other things, the Fed is pushing for that as well, so so money is cheap. And is this this a question where as long as it's cheap money, uh, that's all you worry? That's what markets seem to worry about. I mean, you look at the employment numbers, uh, here you have very low employment numbers, and what happens? Bonds sell off, stock rally, why? Well, it means more fiscal stimulus. I mean, this is a really strange world, but it does suggest that at least in terms of of a lot of investors, the only thing that counts now is what happens in Washington, and the worse things are, the better it's going to be for, for for particularly for equities.
1: Well, I get the sense that investors are going to be disappointed uh, with the outcome um, based upon what you're saying is the backdrop here, and also the backdrop that I see. I mean, just put to put it in a different way, we got we have this 908 uh, starting standing still, starting to stand still, or however you put it. Bill that's going. That's with a, uh, a you know Republican backing to a certain degree uh, it, with a Republican president. When you get a Democratic president in office, uh, Joe Biden, there's going to be less political will to work with him perhaps than there is with with Trump. How is it even possible then that you get anything done in that circumstance, especially if the Senate remains uh, Republican? Well, I, th- I think that's true.
2: I mean, it, it's really just a matter of how bad does the economy get and therefore how much pressure does uh, does everybody in Washington, Democrat or Republican, feel that they've got to uh, bail out the economy. Uh, but again, uh, the whole idea of of government deficits, uh, hey, you go back to Paul Ryan when he was Speaker of the House, you know, he was very much on the war path of reducing the deficit. They, they don't matter now. I mean, they, you know, they call it modern monetary theory. Every time there's an event that happens, there's a theory dreamed up to explain it. And the whole idea now that you're pumping out all this money, there's no crowding out of, of private borrowing, uh, interest rates have, have been declining, et cetera, et cetera. Inflation is declining. All of that, they say, okay, so it doesn't matter. You can you can finance anything you want. Uh, it, it's really kind of a of a never, never, never land. I, I mean, I think it's a is a huge departure from anything you call economic reality. But, you know, that's where we are at the moment.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it does seem like that is where we are at the moment. I, uh, it's interesting you would say that because uh, I had I noted on Twitter, Olivier Blanchard, who uh, is one of these policymakers uh, in economic circles that people know about. He took to Twitter saying that we may be on the verge of a shift in fiscal paradigms. Uh, he said, proof of concept, the large agreement between Summers, Furman, Bernanke, Rogoff, and me at a meeting that they had at the Peterson Institute, by the way, which is anti-deficit. <laughs> I mean, it's it's that's an organization that's that's known to be anti-deficit. So I think that you know, at, at a policy level, it does seem like these guys are uh, very much of that mindset, but the political mindset may be slightly different than that. Um, Uh, let me talk, maybe you can talk to that. And let me just ask an ancillary question that is related. What's uh, Stephen Mnuchin at? Is he, uh, in terms of tying Janet Yellen's hands, is he uh, saying, I'm not of that policy mindset that Blanchard is talking about? Or is he acting in a purely political way? I think it's uh, a lot of it's probably
2: political, Um, you know, kind of feeling of of uh, the Trump administration is on the way out and, and kind of feeling of, you know, why should we necessarily be overly cooperative <laughs> with the, uh, with the enemy, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Um, uh, you know, the idea of, of his saying that, that he cannot extend these programs and there is a question and these things, of course, ultimately get tested in the course, but you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's not Ed, it's not it's not all that simple because we're dealing with very very different programs and situation than normal a lot of these things have not been tested in the courts i mean one of the areas that i think is really fascinating today is uh the, is in the e- executive orders mm. like president mm-hmm. present now i mean they've been used increasingly over time uh but you know the, the, there's an awful lot here you know the the federal government spending is equivalent to 26% of GDP. It's a big chunk. And administrating that is has a huge impact. And and so you see uh, the president with executive orders and Obama put on a lot of these for environmental protection and so on. Trump took them off. Now Biden may maybe put them back on. And all of that is done outside of congressional oversight. There's very little uh, squawking from Congress in that area. And 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 so you have you have an, an awful lot of this which is going to be done. So I think we have to uh, uh, we have to really be very mindful in the regulatory area, uh, certainly. But in terms of fiscal stimulus, you know, how much can the president do outside of congressional oversight? Much less than he can in the regulatory area, where all these agencies, you know, these guys can enforce the laws or or sidestep them or get or get uh, very. Uh, lack of on I think do pretty much whatever they, what the what administration wants to, but uh, fiscal policy there is a lot more direct connection with Congress, but don't just don't neglect what the president can do in terms of administration in the regulatory area.
0: You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipson Ads. Go to com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: Gary, is divided government good for the economy, good for asset markets?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, think the, I think the studies on that show it doesn't make a lot of difference. If you look back historically now, of course, it's it's always tempting to say that one factor determined what happened to the economy, or the equity market, or the bond market, and exclude everything else. Well, you can't. There's a zillion things going on, and an awful lot of what's what's happening in uh, in in markets today, as well as the economy, is a product of what's happened over years, decades. It 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 isn't it isn't uh, you know presidents come in and anything good has happened. Uh, if they take credit for anything bad. Well, that was a previous administration. <laughs> uh, that, that's standard stuff. But it, it really, it really is a lot more complicated than that. But the idea of divided a government, the idea, of, well, they can't muck it up. There's less, <laughs> the, less they can do. But you know, when you get at times like this, maybe that's maybe that's a detriment. Maybe these are times when you when you want to when you want to see more. But I do think that it it will. Um, I think in the fiscal area, it will temper. Uh, what's what's happening? And if you assume that the Republicans uh, take these two Senate seats that uh, will be decided uh, special election early January, uh, then I, I I think you really do have pretty much a a, a stalemate there. And of course the uh, the Democrats lost about a dozen seats in the House, and and uh, there was a lot of charge there that they were turning socialists. And I was kind of surprised that Nancy Pelosi was. Re-elected as speaker, right? But uh, you know, you you do have you do have a situation here of of where um, uh, you got you know we're 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 so divided as a country. I mean, you you know, the election was so close uh, that you really don't have a decisive control either way. Uh, I think the common element now is what do you do to try to keep the economy stabilized uh, at a minimum. If not growing in the face of this
1: pandemic, that's a good forward-looking view. And when you, I look forward also. I'm thinking about uh, where the money comes from. Even though we were talking about uh, modern monetary theory and the concept that deficits don't matter, though, of course, by the way, uh, the MMT guys would dispute our 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 putting it that way. They say, you know, uh, it does matter once you get to inflation, but that's another point. I'm thinking that Joe Biden, uh, he is not of that ilk, and that when he comes into play, taxes are going to be a big question, not just uh, whether they go up or down, but who they go up on and down. And you know, there are a lot of different places you can go. You can go to personal income taxes, you can go to corporate income taxes, capital gains and estate taxes. Do you have a view on uh, what's going to happen in those realms? Well, probably not much. Even if the Democrats did
2: uh, have a slight majority in the Senate, uh, it, it wouldn't be, I don't think it'd be big enough that they could make radical radical changes. Biden's proposals, and of course, candidates make, make uh, uh, proposals that they know, they've got to know, are never going to work out <laughs> to that extent. But, um, you know, I, I would be surprised to see a great deal of of difference in taxes, and you know, Biden is talking about some pretty big changes: uh, increase in the corporate income tax, uh, uh, increases of the of the estate tax, things you were mentioning. Uh, very much a complete reversal of what happened in 2018 with the tax cuts, and uh, and of course, there's a the the uh, the Democrats uh, are are very much in favor of this because at root, they're unhappy with the polarization of income that's taken place in this country. We've got data going back to 1966, and we look at the income shares, not the level of income, but the shares by quintiles. And the top 20% share of income has been rising steadily all over that time. And the other four quintiles have been declining. And so you've had this polarization of income. Now that was greatly enhanced by globalization. Globalization, which was the transfer of Western technology to China and other Asian countries with cheap labor, and then the uh, exports were were uh, brought back, and it just devastated manufacturing in North America and Europe. And that added to this this whole uh, polarization of income because you had a lot of very high-paid jobs in manufacturing in this country that just it just disappeared. You had this income uh, polarization which is uh, has been seized on by the democrats and that that whole tax policy is aimed that way you, you look at uh, now i i live in new jersey uh, you do too and uh, they just passed a, a law in new jersey about a month ago you recall and it increases the tax uh, the income tax on the top rate i think it went from i don't know 9 something to 10 something percent but then they redistributed the money down to everybody else and it was a net increase in tax collections to the new jersey state government was almost nothing it was strictly an income redistribution uh scheme and the democrats it's it, new jersey's a very blue state and Democrats control uh, uh they control everything the, the the state house and and uh, both houses of legislature so you're seeing that in other words it's it's much more an, a, a reaction to this income ongoing income polarization i think, than it is any kind of
1: feeling of, of tax reform, right? So basically, if we get something from Biden on taxes, it'll be at the margin, and the overall tilt will be towards you know I hate to use the term redistribution, but towards uh, lessening uh, inequality. Let's say,
2: yeah, that that's the objective. Now, how far how far they're going to get with that, I think, is is
1: questionable. But that's certainly the That's certainly the desire of the Democrats. Okay, so, you know, um, I'm looking at the time before we get to the uh, investment thesis. I I have two or three things I want to talk to you about before then. Let's see if we can get them in. Uh, I want to talk to you about Europe. But before that, I want to talk about spending. You were saying that, yeah, okay, uh, Biden wants this. He proposes it, but it may not happen on the tax front. What about on the spending front? And I think infrastructure and green energy, in particular,
2: infrastructure is something that I've been I've been surprised has not been attacked full force uh, for at least a decade. I mean, uh, goodness knows we certainly need it: roads, bridges, airports, um, the whole infrastructure. You and I go to Penn Station occasionally, and you know that's a disgrace to New York and, and the human race. I, I mean, we need infrastructure in this country, and both Democrats and Republicans agree. Now, up until now, the whole question has been financing it, and you know who, who who's going to pay for it. But now that we're in a, a situation where where uh, deficits don't matter, and the idea is let's get money into circulation, uh, I think there's going to be a big push for infrastructure spending uh, that will have bipartisan uh, bipartisan support. So I really suspect that, that that will be an, an important element.
1: And how green is that uh, push going to be? I mean, because that's the other element that uh, Biden's been pushing.
2: I would think the bipartisan support would be much more just kind of a more better roads, bridges, uh, straightforward infrastructure. Uh, the the green part of it. Now he can he can do uh, a fair amount with executive orders, you know, uh, prevent the completion of these uh, various pipelines and so on and so forth, and uh, drilling for oil and in Alaska and some of the things that Trump has been trying to open up in the waning days of his administration. Uh, so they have they have probably much more uh, control through regulatory uh, issues and the in the environmental area than they do in
1: just sort of straightforward spending on a new road. Right. Uh, And we've been very, very uh, US-centric here in our discussion. But I know that you look abroad. I I I saw your latest Insight newsletter. You mentioned it's a toss-up at this point. Now, who's worse, uh, Europe or the United States? It seems like Europe is doing worse than the u s though uh, what's going on there from an economic perspective
2: well they they've had uh, they've had more of a, a surge in the virus and we've had although we're catching up unfortunately at a at a very rapid rate. but uh, you, know, you know other, i mean we, we we don't have the kind of centralized control in this country that you have, say in China, and you look at at what's happened. With this virus, it has certainly revealed that we have a federal system, but the states have considerable uh, say over things like health and closing down things. Governors, governors still have power, uh, and and of course in Europe it's even more so because you not only have uh, you know it, it's separate countries and separate languages, separate cultures, and so on and so forth, and the question of, of locking things down. Uh, May be acceptable in 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 Sweden, but it isn't in Italy. So, so I think that there is there is that that problem there. But they've had uh, they've had a, a worse situation, and it looks like they are going to be locking down uh, a lot more than in the U.S. So, I rather suspect that Europe is is going to be weak. Which one of the one of the curious things is that the dollar has been weak against the euro currency, and you're kind of like, why is that? When you look at the relative situation, uh, but the way I've, I've, I've always put it, at is markets can remain irrational a lot longer than I can remain silent.
1: Right, yeah, and you know, that's a perfect segue then into thinking about markets. What, I mean, because when I, I presage this at the beginning, talking about long treasuries, short equities, and the dollar, uh, when you, in your latest insight, uh, talked about uh, where you were on currencies, my understanding is, is that you were saying yes that negative uh, negative dollar trend is going to last longer than i'm solving and therefore i'm not going to go against it well uh, my strategy
2: is this and and in our in our uh, we are registered investment advisors in our money management operation um, you have to be i think you have to be very careful about the the human reactions the emotional reactions in managing money and i've been at this long enough to have to have learned a few things <laughs> about myself. Um, but for example, we our major position has been long treasuries and that's that's been working very well and it has been since 1981. I said, uh, we're entering a bond rally of a lifetime. The yield on the 30-year treasury was 14.6%, it's now 1.6% and the result of that decline in rates, uh, largely uh, some yield, but largely decline rates since then Long Treasury bonds have outperformed outperformed the S&P 500 by five and a half times. Five and a half times, and I, I still think that we have further to go down in in Treasuries because we are, I think, in a weak world economy. We're in a deflationary environment, and the biggest determiner of of Treasury yields is in inflation. Now, other aspects of, of the portfolio, yeah, we're we're slightly long the, the dollar. You say, why is that? The dollar's been beat up. In the last six months. Well, it's one of these things. I continue to believe that one of these days we're going to wake up and the concern about the virus is going to overwhelm the hope that we'll have enough fiscal stimulus to keep the economy running. And if things start to take off and the dollar rallies, uh, I don't want to be chasing it. I want to have a position there. I want to have a toehold so I don't have to panic in. And and the same. so, so it's that, and we, we also have a very, and that's a very tiny position. We also have a very tiny position short the S&P, but there's the same rationale. Yeah, hey, uh, stocks have been rallying since March, but I just say if they turn, I don't want to feel like I've got to chase things. So our principal um, position is long treasuries, which have worked, uh, and we sort of have these toeholds elsewhere. Uh, just an anticipation that things may change and they could change radically overnight in our favor.
1: So um, th- that's interesting because that's definitely not the 60 40 portfolio. Um, and my question, therefore, is given the outperformance of the uh, Treasury bond over a longer term period and that we're only at 1.6%, how much further can that go? Uh, for you, and how long of a duration do you have to be to get the maximum? You know, because you can get a thirty-year, but you can also get a thirty-year strip, and I think we talked about that last time you and I spoke.
2: That's a very interesting question, and and there, there's a lot of I think uh, deliberate delusion I want to describe it uh, among equity investors. Equity investors uh, mostly assume that they're buying stocks for appreciation, but bonds. They say, who would buy a, a, a bond for thirty years uh, at one point six percent yield? Well, I couldn't care less what the yield is, as long as it's going down. And I think we could go down if we went if we went down to the zero point nine percent that we reached in in March. Uh, you'd have almost a twenty percent total return on those on those uh, long treasuries. Now, why long treasuries? And a lot of people, when they say when they say treasuries, they don't talk, they say treasury bonds, but they're not talking about bonds. Technically, uh, a treasury bond is one that's issued with a maturity over 10 years when it's issued. A note is one with with, uh, with 10 year uh, maturity issued uh, from one to, to 10 years, and below that are bills. And a lot of people, when they talk about treasuries, they're talking about the average, which is a uh, duration of about three years. Uh, it's, it's much, much, fun. And, and the reality is that you get much less bang per buck for declining decline in interest rates with the short maturities. Now, I've got to say you lose a lot less if rates go up. There's no free lunch, it works both ways. But the point is that if you, if you really want to participate in appreciation in treasuries, uh, you're much better off in the long end. And uh, as you noted, and we talked about in a previous interview, uh, the treasuries, the the zero coupons, the strips, you get almost twice the bang per buck as you do in a coupon bond. So in our portfolios, we 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 tend to heavy uh, uh, we tend to 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 favor the uh, the strips, uh, the the long the long maturity
1: bonds. We talked a little bit about this before with regard to it. Just seems like the stay at homes. Uh, uh, they're killing it, whereas uh, leisure and hospitality are getting crushed, uh, that tells you that there are different outcomes for different sectors. So forgetting about what happens once the vaccine's administered, but looking at you know how you're positioning your portfolio given the economic climate that we have today, uh, where do you see pockets of potential in terms of retail hospitality? Uh, stay-at-home cyclicals, le- leisure, are, are there places where you're over or underweight? Well, as I say, we're, we're, we're top-down.
2: We're not stock pickers, uh, but I would say in, in general, uh, the stay-at-home economy economy obviously has been, has been the winner, and that includes single-family housing, uh, people getting out of big city apartments into suburbs, into rural areas, they want more space. They have got kids at home. They got an office at home, like you have, like I have. And so there's been a huge rush for single-family housing. And then you have all the the, the related things: uh, people buying online, the Amazon effect we touched on earlier. Um, so you've had a very distinct winter. What's interesting about real estate now is that normally it all goes together. Uh, in 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 good times, with declining interest rates, it it's you get more. Single-family housing, more apartments. uh, People are shopping in malls. There's more uh, demand for office space, but now it's very, it's very, uh, it's more a zero-sum game. So, whereas your single-family housing has been has been very strong, uh, you look at malls. I mean, boy, they have been really beat up because people are simply not going there. The the trend toward online shopping was very strong Uh, earlier, of course, and now it's been simply accelerated with with the virus. Office buildings and people aren't in office buildings. You you mentioned earlier, just wandering around (laughs) outside, and you don't see any people on the street in office buildings. I'm not in my office. You're not in yours. We're at home, Um, so you're you're seeing that differentiation. A couple of interesting aspects of this. Uh, One is one is that a lot of the moratoria on foreclosures on commercial real estate and. And, uh, and uh, other mortgages are going to run out at the end of this year and early next year, both on the federal and state level. Now, unless there's some additional rescue package, uh, there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of blood on the floor. And a lot, of, a lot of lenders, banks and other lenders, they were patient. They hoped the thing was going to go away, so they, uh, they, they simply promoted uh, 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 moratoria and, and forbearance and so on. But that's run. That's that's running out. So I think we're going to see further pain there. Now you look at the rest of the stay-at-home economy. Uh, you know nothing lasts forever. And one of the one of the uh, most significant things about about uh, uh, trends in, in, in investments is just about the time everybody thinks that it's a sure bet and never can go against them, it does. And 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 so you know, single-family housing has been strong. But if the uh, vaccines really work, it's going to take some of the bloom off the rose. I I don't think there's any question that people are going to be more um, away from the office. A lot of people have discovered that they don't need to be in the office. What's happened is that uh, we've caught up with technology. The technology was there. Uh, You and I are utilizing, utilizing it much more than we did earlier. And I think there will be a residual effect, but there will be some Movement back in into the cities. There will be a lack of of, of zeal for for single family housing. Uh, people will probably, to a certain extent, go back to physical stores and won't, won't order everything online. So these, these things are. I, I think they're getting. They're probably getting uh, carried away. This whole stay-at-home economy, but it's it's been very very strong and it's it's very logical and. Again, uh, we saw that, we talked about that, we saw that in the employment report for November. Uh, The strong areas were those related to warehouses and online, and the weak areas were the bricks and mortar stores.
1: You know, um, I'll finish it off. I know that you're not a a stock picker, but I want to talk a little bit more about equities because I'm thinking about, uh, you said trends don't last forever. I'm thinking about the you know this year in the future when the vaccine comes into play and what that means in terms of your portfolio the one that you're thinking about and when you make any switches if, if any to that because that's a world in which the mall that I went to is full where the restaurants are full you know some of the people have come back to their offices is there inflation in that environment how do you play the, the, uh, the bond part of your portfolio and how do you play the equity part of your portfolio? Well,
2: you've got this whole <clears throat> question in a lot of investors' minds. Uh, there's a valley out there. We may have uh, a few rough uh, months here, as you put it, a long, cold, uh, hard winter. Uh, but if you look beyond that to the bright uh, uh, hinterland, uplands below that, everything is just standing. Well, we've seen in the past where attempts to look over the valley it turns out it wasn't a valley; it was a chasm, and it took a long time to crawl out of there. So, uh, the question is, how much how much damage uh, is done to the economy, and 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 uh, and do, is that really affect, particularly equity investors? In the meanwhile, uh, there's 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 also um, so you have that. There's also the question: how much of how much of the future has been anticipated? Uh, you look at price earnings ratios for stocks; um, they're very, very high right now. It, it, you know, there's a lot of catching up in terms of economic growth and profits uh, to simply justify where where you are now. I think the I think the um, uh, PE on the on the uh, uh, S and P five hundred on a trailing twelve basis is only twenty six, and the long term average is more like seventeen. So you you look at the uh, cyclical adjusted. Uh, Price earnings ratio. My good friend Bob Schiller at Yale put together. You'd have to have a uh, just to get back to the long term average. You'd have to have a uh, you'd have to have a thirty percent decline in stocks. Uh, so you know you you've got things that are really gotten ahead of themselves here in anticipation. And uh, you know there's there's this old adage in Wall Street uh, buy the rumor, sell the news. And and maybe maybe the, the rumor is that everything is going to be right, and the news is it's not going to be quite as <laughs> quite as quick and happening as, as you think. So I think there's a lot of ground to be covered. Uh, if you look out a couple of years, yeah, uh, stable. But you know, one of the things that that we all forget is that this idea we're going to get back to normal equilibrium. There is no such thing as normal equilibrium. We looked at uh, we looked at uh, at, at uh, the S and P five hundred, and we looked at at periods. We looked at the volatility. Uh, the standard deviation around, around uh, long-term trends over time. And we said, you know, how many uh, quarters in a row uh, did you have uh, exceptional growth before things really corrected? And it was only about three or four. I mean, it, it's just, it, it just it, the idea that things are gonna deviate indefinitely, it's just not, it's just not part of the, of, of the way the world is put together.
1: Well said, uh, I think that we've covered it all, Gary. That's uh, It's a good conversation as always uh, to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on. And if you don't mind, I'd like to do another plug of your website. Oh, please do. agaryshilling.com. People, uh, uh, Gary said that he's willing to send you his monthly uh, newsletter if you uh, uh, ring him or you go to his website. So Gary, thanks again for uh, talking to us. And it's always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Ed. You're a great interviewer. Thank, thank you. I really appreciate that.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.